This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Thomas Paine once said that the real man or woman smiles in trouble, gathers strength from distress, and grows brave by reflection. Many might say that our times are both troubling and distressing. So if reflection is the source of bravery, Marcus and I want to make a contribution to fortifying a spirit of bravery by using today's show for reflection. Join us for that conversation. We'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as always, we're so pleased to have you join us in the audience, and I am always happy, and I think I get, uh, my spirit is rejuvenated by the fact that I'm sitting across the table from our brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Oh, that's very generous. How are you doing <laughs> right, today, brother? How are you? How are you? <laughs> Pretty good. It's been a tough uh, past two weeks, but, um, you know, I find that coming in here, talking to you is always refreshing and re-energizing, so it's good to be here. It is. I mean, our audience members know know our other life uh, uh, quite a bit that we're professors and we're on the same campus and even though we're colleagues on the same campus when you're on the university campus sometimes you don't see each other that often yeah 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 yeah. so it's really good to have the opportunity to come in here certainly certainly and i think that's probably more uh, especially the case during certain times of the semester like midterms for example advising so right so busy life so campus life can be very busy so it's good to be in here with you all in the audience again just to talk to have a conversation Mm -hmm. about you know things that have been going on in the world And Marcus and I have been uh, making an effort to take the time to sit down and reflect on some of the shows that we've done over the course of the past year. I think the the last reflection show we did, Marcus, we talked a bit about Johnny Davis, and we may touch upon that a little bit again here. But one of the things that we did say is that it is hard to believe that we've done up to thirty five shows already. Yes, this time is flying. It is. This time is flying. And 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 I think one one thing to note um, as we begin this reflection is how much you and I have both learned um, from the shows that oh, we've yeah. done thus far. I think for us it has been it has been uh, very much a learning experience that at least for me is actually it enriching is. Um, my teaching in the classroom and, and other areas of my of my intellectual life as well. So yeah, I just wanted was, to note that. I know. That's one mm-hmm. of the things Marcus and I have this conversation often. We sit down and we talk about how intellectually engaging these conversations mm-hmm. are. It's forced us to kind of stretch ourselves outside of the, you know, our general, the areas where we generally work. Me mm-hmm. as an America's, Americanist focusing on the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. But I, we've had to we've talked about what uh, the, how to make whiskey, you know, and <laughs> and uh, the role of resilience when we talked to Troy Ball. Mm-hmm. And but that was an intellectually engaging conversation mm-hmm. and especially the discussion that we had with her about her sons and the challenges that they have faced with that. So I found that to be a very rich and rewarding conversation, even the conversations with uh, with the the two students from uh, Christ School when we talked mm-hmm. with them. I think it was Jacob Dilday and um, Wyatt. Uh, I can't remember Wyatt's last name right now, but it was a great conversation with them about the issue of civility. Yeah, and those two shows, you know, dealing with resilience and civility, uh, just those those guests alone just reminded me that oftentimes it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that even though we live in a society that does not value or celebrate critical thinking and reflection, Mm -hmm. there are people in North American society who regularly engage in these disciplines, even on the high school level. Mm, (laughs) So, so those shows for me in some ways were, um, 
were inspiring, mm-hmm. um, inspiring and also uh, just helpful reminders uh, of the fact that there are some folks out there <laughs> who who take reflection seriously. That's so. right. I mean, you know, I think as academics, uh, it, it's important to do it. We kind of mm-hmm. encourage our students to do it. But when you t- when you take the time to read and, mm-hmm. you, you know, some of the works that we put in front of our students and that we have to read ourselves for our own work, you really do have to have time to sit down and just think about, yeah. well, what is it that the author is saying, you know, uh, to, as you said, to think about it critically. Mm-hmm. And I think that in our fast-paced society, sometimes reflection gets lost because mm-hmm. we're constantly on the move. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of adopted the habit, Marcus, of just taking the time just to sit back, be reflective, to so meditate on things. So and, have I. Yeah. And I think also quickly before we move it, move on, uh, another reason that I think some people find reflection difficult um, as a discipline uh, especially uh, marginalized uh, persons, African Americans, etc., is that reflection can be painful. Okay, uh, it, it's not always a, a comfortable or even inspiring um, practice to engage in, especially if you're taking a sober look at the history of your community, the mm-hmm. history of people who look like you, um, and so. Uh, it, it, it's important to note that. But on the flip side, I would say that that it, it's well worth it to push through uh, the painfulness that reflection can engender, because on the on the other side of that process is growth. Right. I think growth and and a, and a, and a, a deeper level of understanding that will help to uh, round you out as a person and, and better position you to really make a, contribu- a contribution to your community and to the broader society. And as many of you in the audience know, I, you know, I agree with, with what you're saying there, Marcus, and as, as many of our audience members knows, the show is podcasted. So we hope that you're having the chance to go back and listen to the podcast of the shows that we've done mm-hmm. and having time to think about that. I have run into many people, Marcus, uh, out in the community uh, at events that I've gone to to speak to. And I'm encouraged by the number of people who continue to come up to me and mm-hmm. say, you know, we're listening to the show. Um, I, w- I will say this. One of our uh, colleagues at the university, Dr. David Clark, caught me on campus mm-hmm. uh, just a few days ago and said, you know, you guys are getting really good at this. And <laughs> I told him, I said, well, you know, we're so busy with things that we're doing that sometimes it's hard to find the time to get back into the studio mm-hmm. as, as often as we'd like to to sit down and talk. He said, well, no matter what you do, don't stop doing the show. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we we hope that you're having the chance to go back and listen to the podcast, listen to some of the things that have come up. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Marcus and I talked about in the in the last reflection show that we did, the first one that we've done in a long time, we talked about Johnny Davis and what he said mm-hmm. about, you know, community building. I mean his and we talked about the his time in the in as a um, as a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. And what that means and, you know, how that has become such a, you know, the the thing that so many people, especially in minority communities, are really kind of live their lives for and mm-hmm. how problematic that can be. Mm. And I, w- I would also say, um, uh, just building on your point about listening to the podcast, um, it, it's fine. It's fine to listen to, to, to them in succession, of course, um, or or independently, because I think each podcast does sort of stand um stand independently at its own conversation. But as you listen to the show, to the show successive, successively uh, or in sequence, I think what uh, our listeners will begin to realize is that all of the shows uh, are in various ways interconnected. Right. So that what emerges is a sort of one large conversation 
that draws on a range of topics um, that 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 sort of build upon one another. So so I would suggest that all of our podcasts, what is it, 33, 34, 35 now, um, are all sort of working together in relationship. Um, and I think as our listeners begin to, lend, to begin to listen to more and more of the podcast, they'll they'll realize that. I think yeah. so. Yeah. And so as we as we think about uh, some of those shows, one of the shows that Marcus and I, you know, mm-hmm. really wanted to go back. I think Marcus, you and I talked about this after we did the show to go back and just kind of take a look at was the show that we did with Keenan Lake, right. Mr. Keenan Lake. Right. We had him in here. As many of you know, Keenan is very active here in our local community here in Asheville. Mm-hmm. He works with uh, the Buncombe County uh, Health and Human Services. I mean, he's someone who's at, he is so totally dedicated to his community. Um, I have a deep appreciation of that uh, from my experiences prior to going to graduate school, the time that I spent working in the state's capital capital in Raleigh as a probation and parole officer and, you know, maneuvering through the community, working with people mm-hmm. on a one-on-one basis. Keenan is doing that mm-hmm. um, on a daily basis. You know, Marcus, I've had a chance to sit down and talk with Keenan, you know, following that conversation. I've had many conversations with him. The organization that he runs is called My Daddy Taught Me That. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a sister organization to My Daddy Taught Me That, which is called My Sister Taught Me That. And both he, uh, Keenan, and Leslie Council. Leslie Council runs the the program. My sister taught me that, and I've talked with um, with Leslie, and I've told her that we want to get her in here at some Definitely. point to talk about that side of that program. But um, and you and I will touch upon that as mm-hmm. we kind of talk here about the challenges for for minority men, mm-hmm. especially black men. And Kenan is trying to address some of those challenges through that program. And he's working with kids here in the inner city in Asheville, um, very dedicated work. And, and again, even though we're reflecting upon that conversation mm-hmm. here, I think Marcus and I are in agreement that we would encourage you to go back and listen to some Absolutely. of the things that he Absolutely. said. And I think Kenan's example is important to lift up here. Uh, in part uh, because Keenan, the, the work that he's doing in the community, especially with, with young African-American males, really counteracts the, the dominant national narrative that uh, the black men are that black that productive black men really don't exist. They're mm-hmm. they're method they're 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 the stuff of myth. Uh, most black men are incarcerated somewhere. Most black men have criminal tendencies, proclivities. Uh, they just don't play prominent roles within their own communities. And Keenan's example really undercuts that narrative. And I think part of what he is is seeking to do. Uh, with my daddy taught that or with my daddy taught me that is to is to really contribute to the to a broader process of training young African-American men mm-hmm. um, to be independent thinkers, right. independent contributors to their community, to the broader community um, and responsible citizens, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, the example provided by Keenan and also my daddy taught taught me that uh, those two examples um are are important challenges stand as important challenges to this dominant this dominant very um disparaging narrative of of black manhood that is so pervasive mm-hmm. in um, American popular culture so pervasive in the American news media so important work that he's doing it is it mm-hmm. is and I think about as we're talking here Marcus I it, it, and more background on Keenan. Mm-hmm. Um, Keenan, 
you know, grew up here in Asheville, and he's someone who, you know, went to college because I think he finished his uh, college uh, education at North Carolina Central University in Durham, which is one of the historically black colleges and universities here that we have here in North Carolina. So he had the opportunity to go away. He was a star basketball player in high school here. Uh, I find it interesting in the conversation that we had with uh, Keenan, and this happens all the time when I'm introducing him to people, that Keenan does not tell people that his father was Benny Lake, who was very well known here in our local community as well, uh, also a star basketball player, and went on to become one of the original Harlem Globetrotters. And so, but Keenan talked about his relationship with his father once we prompted him to do that. Mm-hmm. Remember, mm-hmm. I, I guess that, you know, I can, in a sense, uh, you know, the, the son tries to get outside the shadow of the father as much as they possibly can. <laughs> However, Keenan acknowledges the deep, deep impact that his father had on his life mm-hmm. and and playing a very prominent role there. Which, which, which I think also just underscores the import, the importance of Keenan's example because his own his own familial experience challenges the dominant narrative that black men are absent and that specifically black fathers are absent, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I and, and I think it will be important for our listeners to go back and pay attention to that part of the conversation where he's talking about uh, his father and the relationship that they had and his father's impact upon him. Uh, that's an important um, story, I think, to keep at the fore right. um, of conversations about um, you know, what it means to be an African-American male in American mm-hmm. society, uh, what it means to be to to exist in a society that is constantly sort of peddling this narrative of of absent, delinquent, degenerate black fatherhood. And Mark, that's right. And as you bring that up, this this dominant narrative about black males um, that it's out there, Mm. it brings to mind. I couldn't help but think about uh, Michelle Alexander's work, Mm. uh, The New Jim Crow. And we had her here for a visit to to Asheville. Unfortunately, we didn't have the opportunity to interview her. But um, many of you in the audience may have had a chance to go to that event that was hosted at uh, at Mm. UNC Asheville when Michelle was here. To talk about the problems within the African-American community, the kind of prison pipeline that exists and so many African-American males who are caught in that. I think, Marcus, about my time, I've already mentioned my time as a, a working as a probation parole officer here in the state of North Carolina in Raleigh. And just watching how once African-American men are get in that system, and sometimes unjustly, it's almost a Herculean effort to get out of it. I mean, we, we, we burden them down with more. And so you've got this kind of uh, this prison pri- pipeline that exists. And so many African-American males are being lost in the system, and Michelle is trying to, to challenge that. Someone like uh, Keenan, I see, is trying to upset that as well and to challenge that and to and to prevent that and stop it so i couldn't help but think of michelle alexander's uh the new jim crow as i think about the world absolutely and i think one of one of the many important points that she made during that conversation was that um the united states has one of the highest if not the highest incarceration rate in the world which is just a staggering statistic to consider and uh, also, I think, you know, one of the important um, historical points that her book makes, New Jim Crow, uh, Mass Incarceration in, in the Age of Colorblindness, is that 
the the contemporary issue of mass incarceration has everything to do, for example, with uh, with sort of post reconstruction mm-hmm. post reconstruction legal tactics like the black codes, right? Which were which were expressly designed to criminalize black bodies, mm-hmm. especially black men, right. especially black men. Uh, and so and so that pipeline <laughs> that she talks about has origins in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, right yeah, after really the Civil does. War. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind. This is not a new phenomenon. It's not. It has um, deep historical yeah. roots, and it was. And, and it really is the result of sort of careful legal social engineering. It is. And so we have been trapped in this for we a have. long time. Yeah. And in this narrative, and Marcus, I have been, and, and, and I've had this conversation with many members of our audience as well who have listened to the shows. I mm-hmm. talked to someone recently who has listened to the shows on Reconstruction that we did with uh, not only uh, David Blight, Dr. David Blight, who we had here, and then we had Steve Nash, um, who was here we talk with Dr. Uh, Gordon McKinney as well, looking at the Civil War period and Reconstruction and talking about this period and the problems and, and, and the roots of some of the problems that we're dealing with today. And some people have said to me, we didn't know that. I had no idea that these that you could find the origins of some of the, our present day problems with regard to race and the whole prison industrial complex in the Reconstruction period. So I'm glad we've been able to kind of enlighten people just through those conversations to see these deep historical roots that exist in this country. Yeah, and I, I just I know that we, we we've discussed the person that I'm going to bring up many times before, but I, I just can't help bringing up bringing him up again now um and that is carter g woodson right and and i think i think the issue here is not just a lack of historical knowledge the 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 deeper issue i think is a fundamental miseducation that african-americans in particular have been suffering from i would say since at least um you know the 19th century and one of the points that that carter g woodson made um over the course of his career is that uh is that the education of African-Americans should involve at least three things. Um, education about who we are, mm-hmm. education about what we have done, and education about what we need to do. do. And I think that that, educa- that educational program, even though it was articulated by Wilson in the first half of the 20th century, has in many ways been lost. <laughs> um, and as a result, you know, we, 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 we st- we're still faced with this problem of many African-Americans Having no knowledge at all of the history outlined and okay. outlined in Alexander's New Jim Crow. That's right. Outlined in, in other studies of this this period in American history. So, so I think we have to name. We have to we have to sort of uh, resurrect um, and name once again miseducation right. um, as a major factor uh, contributing even to the uh, the prison pipeline. It is, yeah. and what you said that brings up uh, Carter G. Woodson's book, The Miseducation of Absolutely. the Negro, which I think is a very relevant book and still mm-hmm. very important mm-hmm. to be considered. You and I have talked about that. You yeah, know, we right. even had a reading group reading that book at mm-hmm. one point. You know, so Marcus, you bring that up, and I'm going to tell you what b- brings to mind here as well is current issues. Right. And we have here in our own city mm. the issues uh, surrounding the video that was released uh, of, uh, pertaining to the Johnny, Johnny Rush. Rush. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are trying to understand some of the issues around this. And I have been involved in conversations with people who are saying, you know, questions about, you know, why did he react the way that he did and trying to understand that 
there are deep historical roots to the anxiety that many African-Americans feel mm. within our communities and, and how they interact with uh, law enforcement and with people in authority. I saw that when I was uh, working as a probation parole officer. Um, so there's this anxiety that, that exists. And I think that if if we engage this historical past, we will develop a greater appreciation. Does that make sense? Mm. A greater mm. appreciation for why it is that people react in certain ways the way that they do. And I and I, I look at the, the situation with Johnny Rush as well, is that on some level, Marcus, his story, his personal story, as I as I have seen it and read it, goes contrary to the larger narrative about African American males. Mm-hmm. All right. So here we had uh, a man here in the community who was working, who was coming home from work. Right. He worked a 13 hour shift uh, from what I understand, has a very strong and good relationship with his own son. And it has been the history uh, throughout, uh, you know, the history of this country from slavery through the post emancipation period, Reconstruction, all through the civil rights movement where um, African-American men have been our African-Americans in general have been burdened by this narrative that you talked about earlier of irresponsibility. But here we have someone who is essentially working against that and it uh, in conducting his life in a way that was opposite of that narrative, but yet and still paid uh, the penalty for it, as we all saw. And, and I think also it's important to understand the, the the case of Johnny Rush, not only within the broader context of, of um, the black codes, for example, but also within the broader context of America's long history of surveilling black bodies. Mm-hmm. Right. America has a long sociopolitical history of surveilling blackness at the federal level. So, for example, to bring up Carter G. Wilson's name again, uh, here's a man who was anything but a criminal, <laughs> Harvard Ph.D., historian, um, you know, an eminent scholar. And what is he having to deal with in 1919? Mm-hmm. Surveillance at the federal level from, I believe then it was called the Bureau of Investigation. No. By the late 1930s, by which time, you know, he was he, he was he was known across the country. He surveilled by 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 what organization? The FBI. Mainly because he was uh, th- there was some suspicion that he had communist uh, sympathies. That, in my opinion, is debatable. But anybody who's read Wilson's work carefully knows that his primary concern had to do had everything to do with reeducating the black masses, right? Right. And so that, in the opinion of the American federal power structure, was worthy of surveillance, and and perhaps criminalization. Right. So 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 this whole, you know, situation with Johnny Rush, I think, has to be understood in that broader context, not only of 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 sort of narrating black manhood in a way that is that is criminalizing, but also in terms of the broader context of surveilling black male bodies, because those because the narrative says that those black male bodies are a threat. Right. And so they have to be kept track of. That's it. And that's been and that has been the long and painful history, uh, as we both know. Now, you use the word, Marks, I think, is, you know, I want to go back to here because I think it ties into the conversation that we had with Keenan. Reeducation. And on some level, I see Keenan attempting to to do this. Right. But what I found interesting and we can't 
not miss this point that he brought up in that conversation. And for those of you who have not heard that conversation, I encourage you to go back and listen to the conversation with Keenan Lake. But Keenan's title for his organization, My Daddy Taught Me That, um, grew out of a book that he wrote, right, uh, entitled My Daddy Taught Me That. But I was struck by the fact that Keenan told him later on, look, we don't read. So we're not going to read this. So you need to try to find another way to disseminate this information. Now, I'm, as a reader, someone who has learned the, to love the written word, and then it makes me think about, you know, uh, NPR. You know, we're right here on the NPR station, and NPR uh, at once it did a story about uh, reading and reading comprehension. And it is known that by the third grade that children need to be reading for comprehension by the third grade, not reading, not learning learning to read. But if you don't catch them by the third grade, then you're going to have problems uh, later on. But I just found it interesting that Keenan brought up that issue that we don't read. And it was I was just struck by this, Marcus. And, and as was I. And, and I found that and I continue to find I continue to find this highly ironic um, uh, when considered from a broader historical perspective. Right. Because if you consider examples like Frederick Douglass, right, Frederick Douglass, um, gained literacy largely through his own efforts. And the acquisition of literacy uh, resulted in Douglas not only being one of the, the greatest orators that this nation has produced, but also one of the greatest intellectuals, one of the greatest activists, one of the most influential figures in American history. Right. And so um, I continue to be somewhat puzzled as to what fully, thoroughly accounts uh, for this, 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 what, what, what seems to be somewhat of an aversion mm-hmm. um, to reading as, as, as a discipline that one should engage in on a regular basis. basis. Um, it, it, it continues to be so, somewhat of a um, conundrum for me. Right. And as you, Marcus, again, you bring up history and me being a historian, I have to go back to that and thinking about the history of education in black mm-hmm. America. Um, because if we look at the post-Civil War period, um, it go, I'll go back to that period. And we've mentioned on a number of occasions that we're in the sesquicentennial of American Reconstruction. And if you go back and you study the Reconstruction period, you see how actively involved African-Americans were in establishing educational institutions in their community. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were willing to tax themselves in order to have educational institutions. Mm -hmm. And so there's a deep history of a love of learning and education within the Mm African-American community. But somewhere it seems that we kind of got off. We may have gotten off track if if we buy and we we go with what Keenan says. And I'm I'm inclined to to. to say that he's right about because of my own experiences, um, then I'm wondering where did we get off track on this love of knowledge, this love of reading, and how can we get ourselves back on track? And, and, and I have to say, I mean, I think, I think, I think one question that I think one question to ask is who's doing the teaching? That's right. Yeah. Right. So we know that before 1954, for example, the majority of folks teaching, or, or many of our teachers, looks like us. All right. Uh, after that, that historical benchmark, we had teachers who didn't look like That's us. Right, right. And so I think that, um, to be brief, I think that that has come with um, a whole host of consequences that, that, that we can perhaps discuss 
on a later show. show. So <laughs> but you you bring up, you leave it in a really good way. And I tell you, Marcus, I think that we're going to have to double back around on so. Kenan's show again. Yeah. Uh, Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us for this brief moment of reflection about the Kenan Lake uh, show, the show with Kenan Lake. And it, it was a wonderful opportunity to talk with him. And so this has been a great conversation, Marcus, I think. And one thing that we always want to remind you as we kind of get ready to go out here of the show is that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. And follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And we always enjoy hearing from you all. And so thank you again for joining us. And we look forward to joining you again.